morning. My name is Michael Johnston, and I am the host of New Books in Sociology, a podcast series on the New Books Network. And today I have with me Dr. Rachel Sherman. She is an associate professor of sociology at Eugene Lane College of Liberal Arts at the New School. And I will be interviewing her on her book, Uneasy Street, The Anxiety of Affluence. Welcome, Rachel, and thank you for agreeing to this interview today. Thank you for having me. One of the first things that I that I want to mention that was uh, quite interesting uh, about your book is the uh, uh, distinction between the uh, characters in this book, the, di- the distinction between upward-oriented affluence and downward-oriented affluence. Could you uh, talk a bit more about the uh, distinction between these two different social groups? Yeah, so first maybe I should introduce the book a little bit. I mean, so, you know, I conducted interviews with 50, as you said, wealthy and affluent New Yorkers. And, you know, to define affluence is somewhat complicated, but um, I looked for people in about the top 5% of income, which is about uh, $250,000 in income, which I know sounds, often people think that that's middle class in New York, but actually it's not as the the median income in New York is in somewhere in the mid, um, 50, you know, 52, $55,000. Um, anyway, so I looked for people with at least that much income or a million dollars in assets, net assets besides their homes. Um, and what I ended up with was, is a broad range. It's very hard to describe the whole sample in terms of their assets and income because it is very, there is a broad range, but, um, the median income of the sample is $625,000 a year. Um, and my very roughly estimated median net worth is about 3.25 million. So, and I go from people who have two at the very low end of the sample have $250,000 a year in income to people who have, um, 10, maybe $10 million a year in income and people who have a hundred thousand dollars in assets to people who have a hundred million dollars in assets. But the bulk of the sample is in the top there. So there's some people that are very super wealthy, um, kind of 0.1%. And there are some people that are, you know, between the second and the fifth percentile. But most of the people that I interviewed are solidly in the 1%, um, maybe a few of them in the 2%. So anyway, and you know, the, the sample also includes people working who are primarily, um, their wealth comes from their earnings. I'm actually trying not to say the word earner because as somebody pointed out to me that it's already a kind of morally loaded word um, to sort of suggest that they deserve it, which we can talk more about. But so there are people who have salary, you know, are living off of salaries of 500,000, a million, $2 million. Um, And then there are a number of people in the sample who are living primarily off of inherited wealth. Um, And most of the people in the sample are women. Um, about two-thirds to three-quarters of them are women. About a, a third of the total sample is stay-at-home moms, women who are uh, not and not working for pay anymore, although all of them have. And they, like the rest of the sample, are, are very well-educated. Everyone has a college degree from a, you know an elite, almost everybody from elite universities. Two-thirds of the sample, including the stay-at-home moms, um, have advanced degrees. So, you know, it's a very well-educated, very high cultural capital. This is people who are only living in New York and a few people in the New York suburbs. Um, so it's a very particular population. But to answer your question, um, you know, the people who I call 
um, upward oriented. Are, so, so one of the arguments that I make in the book is that it's difficult for but pretty much all of my respondents to talk about having money, right? It's just something that they don't feel comfortable identifying as wealthy. Um, they, you know, I had trouble getting people to talk to me at all for this project. I, once I, I was talking to them, you know, they were often reluctant to talk about specific numbers, particularly, um, some of them said they'd be more comfortable talking about their sex lives. And, you know, I think partly they fear judgment from other people, um, about the kinds of consumer choices they're making. They don't talk to their families outside of New York city about it. They think that they're not going to understand, but they also just don't really want to think of themselves as wealthy. Um, and I think that one of the things that this shows and one of the arguments I make in the book is that despite this you know, idea that Americans are obsessed with wealth and the American dream and so on and so forth, then in fact there is, we, we are ambivalent about wealth and there is a kind of stigma associated with wealth. Um, so that's, you know, sort of the way that they manage this ambivalence really constitutes the core of the book. Um, so within that, there is some variation, as you pointed out, between the upward and downward um, oriented people. So the upward oriented people tend to, they're more often families where their, their wealth comes from income as opposed to inheritance. They're, you know, these are families where someone, almost always the man, is working in finance or, you know, corporate law or some other kind of business, but typically finance. Um, and these are people who are more oriented toward others in, in their own kind of income level or above them. And they don't talk very much about people who are below them, um, you know, people who have less than they do. So they are more likely actually to refer to themselves as middle class. Um, and I argue in the book that, that all my respondents are really trying to think of themselves as middle class in terms of their affects and their dispositions and their consumer habits. And we can talk more about that. Um, but these people are more likely because they're oriented toward people who have more than they do. They're more likely to, you know, call themselves explicitly, um, middle class or occasionally upper middle class. They're less likely to talk openly with me about their wealth, although, you know, ultimately most of them did that, but they've got, uh, they're, they're more reticent in that area and they're less kind of overtly conflicted about the privilege that they have. Downward facing people, as you might imagine, are more, um, their discourse is more populated by people who have less than they do. So they, you know, they just talk about poor people or, you know, not just poor people, but people in the middle, um, they're more willing to acknowledge themselves as privileged. And these people tend to be more inheritors of wealth. They're also tend to be more politically liberal, although all of my respondents are, are pretty liberal. Um, these are the more liberal inheritors. Then I should say that there are about 25 percent of the people in the sample have both inherited wealth and over $400,000 a year in, you know, earned income. So they are not every inheritor is in this kind of, you know, guilty inheritor category, but most of the downward facing people are in this, you know, more like liberal inherit the sort of more common image of the liberal inheritor. And we also often hear a cycle of, I don't have this question down on the, uh, uh, down in our interview today, but uh, this comes up as uh, interesting, a cycle of poverty. Do you see a cycle of wealth as well occurring within these populations? 
What, would, what do you mean by that? Uh, inherited wealth and then uh, continued on. So pro- possibly I would see it as being in the more upward-oriented affluent than uh, downward, but uh, wealth that continues to uh, be passed passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, it's hard for me to say. You know, I didn't do like a, like a very specific generational map of, of these people. I mean, I will say that very few of them came from kind of the families we associate with old money, you know, like Rockefeller, Vanderbilt kind of families. And so even for those who had inherited wealth, Almost all of them. There were a few exceptions, but most of them um, had it was money that their parents or grandparents had made. So, you know, it's not just kind of like late 19th century robber baron money. Um, So that so in that sense, they don't come from these like very long standing, you know, almost aristocratic families. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think that they. There is a cycle that's happening with those people who are primarily living off of their inherited wealth, you know, by which I mean people who they all have jobs, but they're kind of creative class jobs, right? There some of them are academics, some of them work in nonprofits like foundations, um, some of them are artists. So they have jobs that are not super lucrative and then their lifestyles are subsidized by their inheritance of, you know, five to $10 million in most cases, and maybe a little bit more in, in some other cases. Um, so I'm not sure those people seem to be spending their inheritance, you know, more than contributing to it. Although they were very conscious of maintaining the bulk of their assets and passing those down to their children, right. Being economically prudent. And then the people who are earning money, um, mostly come from upper middle class families, I would say most of them were very well educated. Um, so they're not from, again, like some kind of dynastic inheritor families, um, but they're, con- they're really concerned about being able to pass down wealth to their kids, but also to make sure that their kids are able to earn a living themselves because they're, they're maybe a little bit less secure about, about that. And also I just want to add one thing that I forgot to say about the sample, which is that, um, about 20% of the people I talk to are people of color. So I, I don't distinguish between people of color and, um, white people very much in the book or when I talk about the book because of the risk of compromising confidentiality. Um, but you know, some of the people I'm talking about are not white and I just want to make that clear. An interesting piece that you uh, added to the book is this ongoing conversation about renovations to their homes and how uh, how it took a hit to their to their overall wealth, although it didn't necessarily deplete the income or the uh, wealth that they had in their had in their account. But uh, because of I think in part that was because of their identity as being middle class citizens. Right. I mean, I should also say, I forgot to say this at the beginning, is that, you know, the really the focus of the interviews and of the project initially was how people make consumer decisions when they have uh, enough money that they have a lot of flexibility about what they spend that money on. So, you know, partly the project came out of my earlier book, which you mentioned on luxury hotels and also some previous work on the um, lifestyle management industry or the, the personal concierge industry, just trying to think about how when people have a lot of choices, how they decide what they need, you know, how they differentiate between necessities and luxuries, um, sort of how they decide what, what they're entitled to. And <clears throat> I knew that that would have 
you know, something to do with how people felt about having money and privilege to begin with. But I didn't expect that to become such an important part of the book. So when I, you know, was initially sampling people, which I did through snowball sampling, because I didn't have the, I think it's really difficult to do any other kind of sampling. We can talk about the methodological choices if you want. Um, I was thinking about consumer decisions, but it was, you know, like big decisions like where to live or, you know, how, how you decide to buy a house and where that house is and where you send your kid to school school and, you know, how you spend vacations and stuff like that. Um, and it was hard for me to find people to talk to, I think because that sampling, partly because people don't like talking about money and it seemed kind of close to that, but I think also because that sampling frame was so broad. And ultimately when I had interviewed a few people, I realized they had all done home renovation. And so I decided to, um, just use that as the kind of initial point of contact because, People who do renovation have disposable income. They own the property that they're renovating. Um, so it kind of you know, eliminated people who didn't have enough money to be in the sample for the most part, as well as anybody who has done any renovation, as I had at that point just renovated my kitchen, um, knows that you know it is very easy to get people to talk about their renovations. So it seemed like a really good place to start. You know these these interviews about consumer decision making, um, and you know to your point about the money that they spent on renovation, I think that you know partly. In the same way that many of them were invested in thinking of themselves as not that wealthy as a way of sort of avoiding the stigma of affluence, um, they, they, they sort of liked thinking of themselves as, I mean, I shouldn't say they liked it. You know, I'm going to say they liked thinking like, oh, we don't have a lot of savings right now because we've spent it on the renovation. You know, that's something that many of them said to me. I, I'm not discounting the fact that often that did make them feel a little bit economically insecure or nervous, you know, that, that I think that was a real feeling that some of them had, but I also think it was another way that, that they were able to, to not feel overly privileged, right. That they could think like, well, you know, we've actually had to cut back because of the renovation. And even though I don't, I didn't get the impression that any of them had done things that were financially really risky for them. There were a couple of families that I got the sense, and, and of course people may not tell me this, um, but there were a couple of families, it, you know, people I interviewed from whom I got the sense that there actually were some significant financial problems, really significant financial conflicts um, in the relationship, but really that was only one or two people. You know, for the most part, these people seem to be fairly... Um, you know, I mean, obviously they were well off, but that they, they didn't seem to be spending beyond their means. Although, you know, as I said, I can't know that for sure. But what is for certain is their experience, as they describe, is, is rather unique on the East Coast as compared to as some of the interviewees said it would be in Colorado or somewhere, uh, somewhere more inland. Yeah, well, that's another thing that they do is they say, you know, yes, it seems like a lot of money if you live in Denver or if you live in Atlanta or if you live in, you know, the middle of nowhere or whatever. But um, when you're in New York, it's not that much money. So, again, that's another sort of rhetorical strategy for diminishing the amount of money that they're talking about. So, I, you know, I quote one woman who says, you know, my husband's family thinks that I'm a, a, a consumer. I think she said I'm a consumer, meaning like that's really bad. Um and, you know, they think it's crazy what we spend on, you know, the kids school or our mortgage or, you know, those kinds of, of expenses. Um, so I say to my husband, you know, you should just don't tell them what we spend. Like, 
because it seems crazy to them, but to us, it's actually totally normal. And that word normal, you know, my respondents use a lot to describe themselves and their habits. And um, I think that that's, you know, you, you um, alluded a second ago to the idea of their middle classness, you know, so one of the arguments that I make in the book is that they are trying to frame themselves as middle class, um, sometimes explicitly, as I said, with the people who are more upward oriented, but implicitly across the board, you know, they wanted to be kind of normal, reasonable consumers, hard workers, people who were oriented toward providing for their families and, you know, having family routines. And another thing I didn't mention at the beginning is that the people that I interviewed were all between almost all between 30 and 50 and the idea, and they all had children. So the idea that I went into this with was that I wanted to talk to people who were at this, a life stage that I think of as a life stage of sort of lifestyle consolidation, right? Which is often when kids are young. So this is often when people are buying a house for the first time. Um, so they're making some, you know, semi-permanent decision about where they want to be. And, um, when, you know, it's a period when they make decisions about childcare and children's education in particular. So before you have kids, you know, you might be like living in a ratty apartment, um, you know, on a futon, which was one of my respondents with a lot of inherited wealth talked about like having, you know, shared like some flea bag apartment with a bunch of roommates living on a futon when she graduated from college. That's not the best moment to, um, interview her about, you know, her sort of more permanent lifestyle decisions. So I was talking to people who had kids and who I think are probably disproportionately at a stage of life that is really oriented toward, toward families rather than either toward work, um, especially for the stay at home moms, of course, or toward, you know, kind of the kind of consumption that you do when your children are grown up and you might be retired. So of course, they're going to be more focused on their families, but it's a rhetoric that they were very much emphasizing in order to, um, I think, you know, again, not see themselves as privileged because we associate privileged people, you know, our images of privilege and wealth in the media are like lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, the real housewives of whatever, the wolves of Wall Street, this kind of over the top consumption that's often accompanied by you know, morally compromised behavior, people being entitled or rude or, you know, greedy, only caring about money, materialistic, um, ostentatious, you know, all of these kind of negative traits that are kind of stereotypically attached to at least some wealthy people. Those were traits that my interviewees really tried to distance themselves from. And uh, one of the other things that, um, that I read they did was uh, giving – approximately 5% of their earnings to charitable giving uh, as a way to um, maybe moderate their their wealth and, and appear to be uh, somewhat normal because of the uh, because of the giving that they uh, that they made yeah it's so interesting I mean the philanthropy piece is still a piece that I find myself a little bit confused by um, so on the one hand you know giving away money does not it actually does mark you as having money to give away, right? You're, you're not really normal or kind of middle class. You, it's hard to say. So to the extent that, you know, my, my respondents were doing initially, you know, the first couple of chapters of the book are about the way that they cast themselves as hard workers and the way that they cast themselves as reasonable consumers. And those are both ways in which 
you know, they're appealing to this idea of the broad middle class, what Benjamin DeMont called the imperial middle, right, which we all, you know, believe in the U.S. It's the more morally legitimate category. So that's, you know, one thing. But then when they talk about giving back, you know, sometimes they are acknowledging that they have been beneficiaries, right, of a um, – I mean, most of them don't see it in a, as a system or a structural issue, but, um, you know, that they – sometimes they'll call themselves lucky or, you know, that they've been fortunate or – comfortable or whatever. Um, and so they do feel like they have an obligation to give back. Although I would argue that that idea of giving back is quite generalized in the U S too. I mean, it's certainly not limited to wealthy people. Um, so most of them did give money away, but when I, and I think it's really hard, you know, some of them had trouble just leaving aside the question of whether they were being honest with me or not about, you know, their philanthropic contributions or about their income or their assets. They, they may not have been, um, but even when I think they were trying to be, sometimes they just didn't know. You know, many stay-at-home um, mothers don't know how much their husbands are earning. You know, many wealthy people don't know exactly how much they're worth because it, it does change pretty frequently depending on markets. Um, and by the same token, a lot of them didn't know how much money they gave away. So, and, you know, many, most of them didn't use budgets, right? They're not, you know, they have a general idea of how much they're spending and, um, but, but often not very specific. So that I'm saying that because it's very difficult for me to estimate, um, a pr the proportion of their income that they're giving away. But in most cases, it did seem to me to be relatively low. I mean, 5%, I think is the most that, um, maybe there's one or two very wealthy family, you know, so it's when someone says you, we give away $250,000 a year, that seems like a lot, but if they, you know, have $50 million in assets, maybe it's not that much. Right. So th these are, you know, kind of, it's just hard for me to kind of adjudicate that. And there was a lot of difference across the sample in terms of how much, you know, there were some people that really thought of themselves I mean, not as, you know, the word philanthropist sounds kind of fancy, so I'm not sure that they would say that, but who, you know, who cared, spent time thinking about how much money they gave away, where they gave it to, you know, who were quite intentional about it. And then there were a surprising number of people, surprising to me, who really didn't do that and who would kind of, you know, almost everybody gave a lot of money to the colleges they had themselves attended. Many of them gave money to their kids' schools, whether they were public or private, though they're mostly private. Um, and then they would sort of give money to their, you know, their friends had causes that then they would donate to or they would be, you know, asked to donate by people they knew. And so that was kind of how their donations worked. They didn't have like a, you know, kind of a commitment to particular areas of, of philanthropy. So this was overall a little bit less of a prominent thing than I had imagined that it would be. And you know, perhaps it's for the same reason. I mean, again, that in order to be like, I'm going to really think about giving a lot of money away and I'm going to be really careful about who I give it to um, and thoughtful about that, you know, you have to be acknowledging that you are in a position to do that, which, as I've said, is something that I think that they kind of didn't want to do. But I want to make another point, which is that sometimes in the, in the conversation about giving back, um, you know, one way that people kind of, I think, understood themselves as giving back or, or at least like fulfilling a certain social responsibility was by being aware of their privilege. And this was a 
um, you know, construct that a lot of them use that being aware and appreciative of privilege was really important. It was very important for them to kind of instill this in their kids too. So there's something really taboo about having the privilege and not appreciating it, right? Just feeling like you deserve it. This is this, the, the really taboo feeling is the feeling of entitlement, right? Um, and you know, Seamus Khan's book privilege, I think outlines this, well, this kind of the, the sense that you deserve it just because of who you are, you know, that you're in a um, wealthy family or that you have some, you know, you're just better than other people for some reason. <laughs> so, which I think is, you know, more frequently the way that this was thought about when we had a more aristocratic upper class in the U S. So my response were really want to distance themselves from that, that notion of entitlement. And one of the elements of not being entitled besides, you know, working hard and consuming reasonably is to be grateful for your privilege, to not depend on it. So they'll often talk about like how they could live without it. Um, and you know, to, to appreciate it. But what's really fascinating about that is at the same time that they're sort of privately or inwardly appreciating it, they're also following this, um, social norm of never talking about it. So publicly, there's a silence about privilege, right? And privately, there's a kind of acknowledgement, except the only people that they're really acknowledging it to is themselves and, you know, maybe their spouse and in some ways with their children. So I found that really, you know, it's one of the things that I think then perpetuates um, this silence around inequality and therefore the kind of legitimacy around inequality is that people feel morally um, worthy if they're, as long as they are kind of inwardly aware of it and as long as they outwardly don't talk about it, you know, it's just a, kind of a weird tension. And many of them saw themselves as being privileged. Say, uh, I remember one of the, uh, one of the participants in the study, uh, said that she wouldn't even tell her parents about how much money she made. So, uh, it is rather inwardly, uh, noticed, uh, within the nuclear family, but extended family many times did, didn't know of the wealth. Right, exactly. I mean, and so then again, those are people who are coming from, you know, typically backgrounds outside New York, um, often with, I think the woman that you're referring to, her parents were really politically progressive. She didn't want to tell her sister that she had a housekeeper, um, you know, someone who cleaned her house and, and she had a nanny and, you know, she felt guilty about these things. But yeah, there wasn't, you know, she wasn't really talking to anybody um, about those conflicted feelings. So one of the other um, parts of uh, of your research had to do with the patriarchy that existed within the uh, within the family and how men still controlled um, much of the of the money in the home and how it was spent. Uh, could you talk a bit more about the uh, control that the uh, father role, the male, uh, had in the in the household in terms of controlling how much how much his wife and, and children consumed? Yeah, I mean. It's such a fascinating thing. You know, I was, I think there are differences. And again, my sample's not big enough to map this, um, you know, in a super convincing way. But I think that there are differences between different kinds of households. So households in which both people earned money, um, in my sample, men did not control the money, right? That money was jointly controlled or, you know, the women seemed to, have a really good handle on, um, what was happening with the money. Sometimes they were actually fully in charge of the money, um, in terms of investments and they really understood it. Um, and this was true maybe, and I can think of one 
household with a single earner and a stay-at-home mom. And the stay-at-home mom, you know, had had a very lucrative career herself. She had some, and both of she and her husband also had some inherited wealth. So the money wasn't entirely coming from him. And she was, you know, she was clearly the one who was on top of all of their investments and knew everything that was happening. Um, so in those dual earner or, you know, recently dual earner households or in households where the woman is the inheritor, um, you know, the woman typically has at least equal or, um, even, you know, greater control over knowledge of and control over the assets. But what was really striking to me was in these stay at home mom, you know, among the stay at home mothers. And mostly I was interviewing them and not their husbands. Right. Um, I did try to interview their husbands, but they husbands don't have time. And I think the husbands just didn't, you know, sometimes the women would say to me like, Oh, my husband would be happy to talk to you. And then I would follow up and they would say like, Oh no, he doesn't want to talk to you. Um, partly because of the time. And, and I think probably partly because of talking, not talking about money also. And a few stay at home moms said, you know, my husband's much more private than I am about talking about money. I, you know, I'm not even going to tell him that I talked to you. He would kill me if he knew that, he, you know, I, I mean, they're metaphorically saying that, but they're not actually afraid of the, their husbands. But, um, so, you know, men were maybe more private about some of these things, at least in some cases too. But anyway, so in some of these households, well, in all of these arrangements, it was clear that the potential existed for the man to control the money more. And, it wasn't always a problem, but even the women who talked about it not being a problem, it was clear that they, they knew that it could be a problem, you know? So, so, you know, I quote one woman whose husband made, you know, had many, many millions of dollars. Um, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm so lucky that my, I can't remember, this is not the direct quote, but I'm so lucky that my husband, you know, doesn't try to control me and he recognizes what I do as a job and, you know, that he says he couldn't do his job if I weren't here, like, you know, holding down things around the house and with the kids and so on. Um, and she said, you know, I have friends whose husbands put them on a budget and, you know, that would never work for me. So, and it was actually, because, I think it was because of this woman that I started thinking about the ways in which this kind of control, um, you know, it's both that men are controlling, literally controlling a budget or, you know, an outflow of money, but it's also the ways in which men are recognizing or failing to recognize the labor of stay at home moms as legitimate, you know, as legitimate contribution. This woman's husband was, was doing both of those things, not controlling her and also recognizing her contribution as a real contribution. And when one or both of those things wasn't happening, you know, the women would describe more conflict in their marriages about over money. So, you know, men sort of being like, why are you spending so much money? Um, and again, sorry, the, the, you know, backdrop to this is that, of course, women are still responsible for consumption. So they are actually responsible for spending money. So when I say that they don't know what's going on with the money, it's not that they're not dealing with money. You know, often they're paying the bills. They're certainly much more likely to be spending money you know, for the household, for the renovation. Well, maybe not for the renovation. I'll come back to that. But, um, you know, for the kids' activities and so on. So they're spending, you know, as has often like longstandingly been the case that women are in charge of household consumption. They just aren't in charge of the assets. And they often don't have, you know, full information, as I said before, about the husband's income or about the um, family's assets. 
So there can be a lot of conflict between within these couples because the men don't quite feel like the women are doing anything legitimate with their time. And they just think like, you know, why you're you're basically spending my money that I'm earning. Um, And the women feel like you're not recognizing all this labor, some of which includes spending money that I'm doing on behalf of the family. And then sometimes the women themselves were quite conflicted about this. Right. I mean, as I said, they're. These are women who are highly educated, have, you know, many of them have MBAs or law degrees and have been working as lawyers or as, you know, in business or in finance or consulting or whatever. Um, and it's hard. It's been hard for them to give that up. And some of them, I think, definitely would have preferred to continue working if it were possible to, um, you know, reconcile working for money with having kids, which in these highly paid occupations, because they involve so much time commitment and often travel and so on, it really isn't. Yes, and then the uh, the kids. Uh, one of the interesting thing is things about that is they are often isolated, kept isolated from the wealth their family has. I remember you discussing how some of the families would put their children in public schools, but then it would uh, turn out that uh, they oftentimes got bored or it wasn't stimulating enough because of how much they already knew. So then they would uh, go over to private school to um, earn a better education and and feel like they were uh, learning something, gaining something from the the private school. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the the interesting thing here is the conflict that parents articulate, right? And that they feel about how to raise, they really want to raise kids who are not entitled. And that is where this word entitled comes up, you know, all the time in the way that they're talking about their children as a really negative characteristic, right? They don't, and you know, this word, I mean, I'm really fascinated by the word itself because it spans such a wide range of, you know, terrible things. Like it's, you know, it means to be selfish. It means to be rude. It means to be greedy. It means to be materialistic. It means to have this belief that you somehow deserve it just on the basis of who you are and not on the basis of anything you've done. Um, so it encompasses this, you know, just, just really negative range of, of dispositions and behaviors. And so in order to avoid that, right, they try to limit their kids access to, you know, they try to limit their kids consumption, um, or they require the kid to do, you know, chores or otherwise kind of contribute labor or contribute in some ways in, you know, in exchange for their allowance or certain kinds of consumption. I mean, of course, what the kid is, is kind of de facto consuming well beyond their allowance is, of course, extremely privileged, right? The kinds of houses they live in, the kind of food they eat. I mean, you know, the kind of attention that they're getting, not only from the parents themselves and from their teachers, but also from, you know, they have tutors, they have therapists, um, you know, they have and several people that I talked to had kids who had learning disabilities, you know, who were getting the best possible attention for those. So, um, you know, the, the limits on consumption are mainly uh, what Alison Pugh in her book, Longing Belonging, calls symbolic deprivation, right? There, there's just kind of the idea of limits. It's limits at the margins. But anyway, so they do that. But then the other thing, which is related to the question of schools that you brought up is this conflict over what kind of people their kids are going to be um, exposed to. So on the one hand, you know, these parents want their kids to be down to earth. They want them to, they want them to be normal, right? They want them to, to have this kind of 
you know, regular affect and they don't want them to think that everybody has a house in the Hamptons and they don't want them to think that everybody goes to, you know, St. Bart's for spring break, which is what many family, many of these families in New York private schools, you know, do go on spring break to the Caribbean or to Europe or to wherever. Um, so, and whether or not, you know, the parents that I'm interviewing, are actually doing those things. Either way, they don't want kids to think that everybody does that. You know, the people, everybody travels in a private plane, for example. So they want the kids to be exposed to people who have less, but they can't quite figure out how to do that. And some parents, you know, have a more like noblesse oblige kind of orientation to this where they put their kids, you know, they make their kids do volunteering in a soup kitchen or um, other kinds of charitable works or when they're little, they make them give away their birthday present or their, you know, Christmas gifts or something like that. So they, you know, they're sort of understood that other people are poor and you have to help the poor. And then there are parents who were more concerned, not so much with like people who, you know, with exposing their kids to real poverty, but just exposing their kids to like the actual middle class. Um, so I talked to one mother who, you know, during the renovation, they had lived in a kind of middle-class apartment complex, um, in New York. And she wanted to, she said, you know, we want our kids to stay friends with the kids that they were friends with from there, even though, you know, she said something, you know, something like there's three kids in a one bedroom apartment or, you know, something like that. So, because, and this is a quote, she said, I want them, I want us to keep our feet in something more normal. Right. So that's a way of sort of you know, making sure that the child, that her kid's world is not in this bubble, you know, which is a, another word that a lot of these parents would use this idea of the bubble. On the other hand, right, you know, putting your kid in these more normal or common environments sometimes would mean to, you know, deprive the kid in some way of some kind of advantage. And the most obvious thing, you know, place in which this happened was in the school choice. So if you want your kid to be exposed to more normal kids, you will put your kid in public school. Right. But many of these parents, you know, didn't want to do that. Um, some of them didn't want to do that from the beginning. I mean, they just never even thought about it. Although when they talked about the private schools that they were choosing, they would talk about, you know, choosing ones that were more down to earth, that were less snobby, you know, but they wanted a, a down to earth culture in the private school. Um, a lot of the parents I talked to were really conflicted about whether or not to put their kids in public school. And some of them started in public school or thought seriously about public school. But, you know, as you said, their kids got bored or they were worried that their kids would get bored or they were worried that the, you know, um, student teacher ratio was too high in public school and that the kid would be, you know, climbing the walls kid wouldn't be able to sit still. So, you know, they have these kind of, it's like they retain a general commitment to the idea of public school. They don't want to be just people who think that private school is better, but there's always some reason, some exception why their kid actually ultimately needs to go to private school. And, and some people were really conflicted about this. I mean, I talked to one woman who went to therapy for, you know, a year or something um, in order to just to talk about putting her kid in private school <coughs> because he was bored in public school. So, and I think that that, you know, I think that these conflicts are genuine because they really are trying to figure out how do you raise a, a normal person. But at the same time, you know, this also came up with questions of like vacations and, and, um, you know, just the apartments or, or houses that these kids were living in are, you know, many of them are really nice. I mean, 
you know, they're not mansions for the most part. Um, maybe one or two. I may have seen a couple of pretty impressive houses in the suburbs. But um, and the parents in, in are facing this other problem about, about like communicating what's normal to kids because they they will talk about telling their kids like you know, it's special that you get to go to private school. It's a treat that you get to go on vacation to Europe or to Mexico or wherever, you know, every year. Um, you have to appreciate this. Again, like you need to understand that this is something that has to be appreciated. But of course, for the kid, it's not special and it's not a treat because it's not out of the ordinary, right? This is something that the kid is, you know, every year going to Europe and every day going to private school. So the parents are, are trying to kind of instill this disposition of appreciation in the kid as if these things were exceptional when in fact they're not. And, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know ultimately how, you know, what these kids come out understanding about the world. Um, I think that mostly what the parents are doing is trying to instill a kind of, you know, habitus of, of legitimate privilege, a way that they will act in the world that they will then, you know, themselves be hardworking, reasonable consumers who will give back and be aware of their privilege um, and not be, you know, entitled and obnoxious. But it doesn't ever mean re- ultimately it never means curtailing the kids privilege. Right. It, they still get the private school education. They still get all of the you know extras um, that they live with. They still get the vacations and the nice house. And, the, you know, and, and another place that it shows up is in the relationship between paid and unpaid work, just in the way parents talk about, you know, whether because, as I said, most of the parents I talked to had relatively young children. So had not, you know, were not confronting either the possibility of actually doing paid work or of college admissions. Um, so parents of younger children tend to say like, yeah, my kid is going to work for money when they're in high school and college, you know, to really, you know, it's valuable to do that. And it's, but some of them were like, well, I don't know, is it more valuable to work for money and work at a diner or like, you know, do an unpaid internship working with, in, in the case, one woman mentioned, um, you know, studying Harbor seals in Alaska, right. Then you are, the kid is much more enriched by, and I think enriched is itself an interesting word um, by these experiences that typically are unpaid rather than experiences of, you know, whatever, scooping ice cream um, that they're going to have for pay. So the parents are conflicted about that. Again, you know, I don't have a huge sample, but it seemed to me that as the kids, you know, the parents of older kids were less likely to say that they wanted their kids to work for money, that that was more of a kind of imagined thing that parents of younger children would say. And then when push came to shove and they were starting to think about their kid, you know, in high school, getting into college, they would talk more about the kid's job being their homework and, you know, to do well in school and stuff as that, as the reality of the, you know, competitiveness of college admissions approached. But in any case, this is another place where you see the conflict between what they, the kind of disposition they're hoping to form and the advantage life that the, these children are actually living. Well, we're all out of time today. Um, a final question. What are you working on now? It's not entirely clear to me what I'm working on now. Um, I am doing some research on flight catering on, on airplane food and how it's produced and possibly also on um, food concessions in airports because, you know, airports are an interesting place where you know, they're essentially like factories. I mean, there's in the big airports in the U.S., there are tens of thousands of people working in these places and they're, you know, in, they're obviously major 
kind of spaces of, of public infrastructure and they're publicly owned yet, you know, many of the jobs are, are really, really low wage and the jobs of the people that make food for airlines are, you know, especially hard. They're essentially working in industrial, you know, factories. I mean, if flight kitchens are basically food factories. Um, so I'm sort of investigating that and thinking about how far I want to go with that. And then I'm also, um, doing some preliminary work, getting back to my original interest, which you signaled in labor and the labor movement on worker political education, um, and sort of how some unions and other kinds of workers organizations are trying to help workers think about the world in particular ways, which I think is, you know, really important in, in our current political moment. Yeah, those are both interesting topics. The uh, hyperconsumption of, of airports and the amount of people that uh, the workers deal with on a regular basis is is huge and, and just the way that they are expected to, to work in the public. Yeah. And I mean, working in airports also, you know, so much of the work in certainly in flight catering, but also in food concessions is determined by the pace of the, you know, the fact that it's an airport and that what you're doing is putting people onto planes and which are, you know, taking off and arriving often not on schedule. So worker schedules are really tied to um, the schedules of the flights and their working conditions are, you know, often just not, not very good, but they're because airports are, you know, for people who are consumers in airports, they're not places that you hang out, right? You're not really, you know, we don't think about them as workplaces so much as we do just frustrating spaces of transition, right? Um, but of course, for workers, you know, they, these are places that they go every day and they're, and they're really important as employers in, in their communities, um, you know, especially the bigger airports. I mean, the Atlanta airport, for example, is the largest employer in the state of Georgia. And so, you know, I think that thinking about these in a different way um, is important, but I, I'm not quite sure, you know, where I'm going to go with this project. Well, I look forward to seeing more of your work and uh, getting to talk to you again when your next book comes out. Well, thank you so much for talking to me now at such great length. 